your attention, please. During every suspenseful moment of the running of the Classic Horse Club podcast, the life of everyone will be insured by Lloyds of London for $1,000 against death by fright. However, even Lloyds of London will not grant coverage for any person with a known condition or for suicide by any member of the audience. I had a little trouble this time trying to find a song that would go with the movie Macabre. So I stretched the rules a little bit and we just heard a snippet from William's Castle. That's by Marco Beltrami. It's from the original score of the 2006 film Underworld Evolution. So William's Castle, I think that counts. It counts. It's close enough. It works. Yeah. And why, why is William's Castle appropriate? Why does it work? Well, it might be because we're taking a look at the films of William Castle. Yes, it's one of these episodes where we're going to take a look at the career of William Castle and we're going to talk about the films that he did and then focus in on two of his movies. And like we said last time, we're not going to do the easy ones. We wanted to go the road less traveled and we are going to be taking a look at 1958. And how do we pronounce this title? Is it macabre or is it macabre? Or Macabre. Macabre. We'll be talking about one of those versions. And then... I vote for Macabre. It's fewer syllables. I think so. Yes. And uh, 1964's The Nightwalker, starring Barbara Stanwyck in in a very unique role. That Every time I saw her doing certain things, really, there's a style that she had at this time. I kept thinking of Victoria Barkley from The Big Valley, there, there was moments where it's like, that's Victoria Barkley. Anyway, we're going to be taking a look at those two films and, and all of talking about all the, the career of William Castle, the high points, the low points, and, and uh, certainly have a, a few recommendations along the way. I saw a pretty good chunk of his bigger films. Really only one film I didn't make it to. We crammed a lot in in a short amount of time. And are we going to pronounce that the Night Walker or the Night Wallacher? I don't know. The Nightwalker. That's a whole nother movie. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And you, sir, what qualifies you to be watching William Castle movies and talking about them? I'm Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com, where I will just do a sneak peek that you will find some of my, my thoughts throughout the month of April. By the time you hear this, some of those will have already been posted and more will be posted throughout the whole month. I will go ahead and call the meeting to order. It sounds like we are going to have a packed episode talking about all those movies and even just the life of William Castle. So let me bang the gavel. And before we dig in, I just want to remind people we do have a video companion on our YouTube channel at Classic Horrors TV. We invite you to go there and see clips with videos and video clips. (laughs) (laughs) and uh, outtakes, things that you won't hear on this audio podcast, but we do special just for the video. 
All right. Our first item of old business, roll call of new members. We have two new members to the Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. We'd like to verbally welcome Richard Isles and William Hess. Welcome, one and all. Thank you for joining the club. And we have some feedback that I pulled from various places. I decided I'm not going to read feedback that's on the Facebook group page because... That's why it's there for people to go and to give feedback and to have conversations. So while during the show, we might reference some things because that's been a great place for people to share things they've learned that are coming out or that they've bought or we might point out some of that, but I'm not going to read any of the feedback. But we do have a couple of other methods used to give feedback on the aforementioned YouTube channel. Patty Van Tassel wrote Young Frankenstein is my favorite Mel Brooks movie. Thanks, Patty, if you're listening to the audio podcast. Then we had a very nice email from Vince Simonelli, and we appreciate you taking the time to send this. Jeff and Richard, I just finished the latest episode covering Uncle Was a Vampire and Young Frankenstein, a very enjoyable show about two films I really appreciate. I was so excited when Severin released the remastered transfer of Uncle Was a Vampire as it's absolutely gorgeous. I've been putting up with a truly awful bootleg copy for years, and this version is a revelation. I agree with Jeff about horror comedies. The best don't try to straddle both worlds. Perhaps this is why I've never liked an American werewolf in London as much as most genre fans do. I found Uncle to be very amusing and great snapshot of Italian cinema in the late 50s, early 60s. Beautiful settings, jazzy music, and beautiful women. Real dolce vita. Now the bad news. I love you guys, but I have to say the Italian pronunciations were painful. Also, the lady's name is Silva, not Silvia Koshina. That sounded more Asian. Sorry, Vince. I mean, I, I just can't do it. A minor criticism of an otherwise great show. I own that totally. I do the best that I can. Jeff always throws the hardest words at me. That's okay. Italian names, actually any foreign name is very difficult. I apologize for any horrible mispronunciations. And he finishes up his email. I share your high opinion of Young Frankenstein. It remains the only film I've seen multiple times on its initial run in the theater. It's nearly a perfect film and a loving send-up of the Universal Classics. Like Carla, my family and I can and do quote lines at a moment's notice. If I have one criticism, it's that it has forever ruined the hermit scene in Bride of Frankenstein for me. It's so difficult to take that poignant scene seriously now, and I keep waiting for him to offer the monster espresso. Thanks for another excellent episode. I look forward to the next. That is true. I've seen Bride of Frankenstein in recent years, having started watching Young Frankenstein annually now with Carla. And yes, I do see the same thing. It's like, oh, wait a minute. There's Gene Hackman. I do want to give a shout out to my mom and brother. I was not going to do it because they had been slacking and had not been listening to the episode. But I have evidence. Yesterday, my brother texted a picture. They were listening to the ladies night episode. So they're one behind, but at least they're listening and they get bonus credit because my brother sent a picture of my mom perusing the pages of scary monsters doing their part and going a little bit above and beyond. We appreciate your support, Jay and mom. I wonder why they were looking at scary monsters. 
I don't know. Would that be he doesn't know what she's looking at these days. Yeah, <laughs> that would probably be because you have an article in the latest issue of Scary Monster. But is it? Yeah, it's the latest issue, the drive-in issue. Yes. Yeah, the Monster Memories. Yes, the Monster Memories one, which is yeah. an awesome cover, by the way. So, I actually wrote that for the previous issue about subterranean creatures, like the mole people and everything, because that mole people graphic magazine I, I thought would tie in and they didn't have room for it. So he said he was going to put it in another issue and I forgot kind of about that. And there it was. So when I got two in the mail, I was kind of perplexed because I did a little catch up and ordered some that I haven't been able to find yet. And then they always send a complimentary copy. Very cool. Well, congratulations anyway, on getting thank you. once thank again. You. Awesome. And I'd read the article and it really was a lot of fun. I will say this, you know, hello, Jeff's mom. Hello, Jeff's yeah. brother. And hello, Carla. Yes. Yes. Hello, Carla, who's probably listening off in the distance. She keeps coming in here with advice and suggestions, yes. which makes me worried us. that she can hear every word we're saying. <laughs> Luckily, I like her and I'm not, you know, bad mouthing her. <laughs> I will say, talking about perusing the podcast, this is something I, I stumbled on yesterday. I'm late to the Spotify I listen to CDs. I've got a record collection. I've got you know iTunes, whatever they call it these days, Apple Music. And Pandora is on our TV if we want to plug in and, and listen to something. And Carla's been complaining that Pandora has really been getting off the rails. She'll listen to a Pink Floyd song. And then like two songs later, it's Leonard Skinner. I started experimenting Spotify. So I, I've entered the 21st century. And you know that we're on Spotify. Yes. And, and so, you know how cool it is to be sitting there and just kind of showing her how it works. And it's like, well, you know, doing a search for Pink Floyd, doing a search for Led Zeppelin, doing a search for Ella Fitzgerald, and then doing a search for Classic Horror Club podcast. And bam, a billion episodes pop up. Every episode that's on the feed is readily available. And I thought, I'm on the same app as Ella Fitzgerald and, and <laughs> Pink Floyd. In the favorites, it's like Rush and Ella and Nat King Cole and, and Jeff and I. I'm sorry. That's freaking cool. That was a moment where I'm like, I had to take a step back and think, that's pretty awesome. And letting people know that you can listen to Classic Horse Club in a wide variety of ways. But if you have a TV with apps on it, you can have Spotify and you can just sit there in the comfort of your living room on your couch and sit back for four or five hours, however long the episode is and listen to the latest episode. I tend to take advantage of everything. And that's great to take a moment and really appreciate what we're doing. So thanks. It made me feel good. Let's tell people how they can leave that feedback for us. We, of course, have talked about the Facebook group page. Our email address is classichorrors.club at gmail.com. What else? Oh, yes, our phone line. Leave us a voicemail call. And that number to do that is 616-649-2582 or 616-649. If I could pull off a Barbara Stanwyck scream <laughs> right now, I would, but I can't. So I'll just say club. Very good. And we mentioned the YouTube channel. So Rich, before we dig in, we could not do an episode about William Castle without having a gimmick of our own. Indeed. Would you like to tell people what that is? In the spirit of the late, great William Castle, we want to offer you a certificate of survival. If you can make it to the end of this episode 
hearing all of the facts we have to offer about the films of William Castle, about his life, talking about some of the films in more detail. If you make it to the end, you have an opportunity to get this special certificate. We're going to do a screen break. Yeah. We'll call it a screen break. When you hear Barbara Stanwyck scream, and this is not what we're talking about the trailer, that doesn't count. At some point towards the latter half of the podcast, we will randomly break and you will hear Barbara Stanwyck's scream. And when you hear the scream, we will give you a special password or code word or a phrase, something. You just need to remember what that is. And then at the end, we will go ahead and offer up a reminder, send us an email and it has to be email. This is the best way for it to work. Send an email with that special code word or password. Jeff will reply and you will be able to receive your certificate of survival proof that you made it through episode 79 of the Classic Horse Club podcast. And tell all your friends and family. Jeff's mom, Jeff's brother, you're eligible to receive a certificate of survival. There's plenty for everybody. Absolutely. All you got to do is survive. And let's be honest, it's maybe not as easy as it sounds, but <laughs> true. Survive our, one of our episodes. So, anyway. All right. Let's get to the man himself, Mr. William Castle. Richard, you want to kick us off? Yes. William Castle, writer, producer, actor, and director. He was kind of a man of many hats. He was born William Schloss, <laughs> I can't even <laughs> pronounce the English words, William Schloss Jr. He was born on April 24th, 1914 in New York City. He was orphaned at a very young age. Uh, his mother died at the age of nine. His father died the following year at the age of 11. Now, he had an older sister, lived with his older sister, and his life changed at the age of 13 I would say for the better. Tragedy turned to a turning point in his life in which would set him on the course for the rest of his life. He saw the play Dracula with the legendary Bela Lugosi. He was mesmerized by what he saw on the stage. And from that point forward, he knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to get into show business, I guess is the best way to put it. He dropped out of school at the age of 15. He started working on Broadway, building sets, and even doing a little bit of acting. At some point during this time period, he adopted his professional name of William Castle. And apparently he translated Schloss to Castle. Another big turning point came into a series of events. He managed to get Orson Welles' phone number. And at this time, Orson Welles had not quite gone Hollywood yet. Orson Welles was doing radio. He was doing The Shadow in 1937, 1938, playing the character of Lamont Cranston in that first year of the dramatic version of The Shadow. And then, of course, with his Mercury Theater players, he brought the Mercury Theater on the air, which fall of 1938, War of the Worlds, made Orson Welles a household name. And it wasn't too long after that that Hollywood was beckoning and he was transitioning from radio and stage to making films and just not too far removed from one of the greatest films of all time, Citizen Kane. So he got Orson Welles' phone number and persuaded him to give him the Stony Creek Theater in Connecticut. Stony Creek was originally a movie theater and then it had transitioned into stage productions. If you see some of the pictures of this 
as it originally was, this little rinky-dink theater in Connecticut. It was very small, but think of the legends that were there, actually survived for a period of time after William Castle was there. It then switched to becoming a parachute factory during World War II. But then at some point, it reopened and became a puppet theater. And apparently it was a well-known puppet theater. I didn't know there was such a thing, but there was. It shut down at one point and then kind of went into a stage of disrepair. It has since been renovated, reopened once again. It is once again doing stage plays. This theater, which I think opened like 19, was it 1911, I think? Very early movie theater, still standing over a century later. It's been significantly remodeled, but it's amazing that it's still standing there. And I wondered, I didn't see any recognition of William Castle on its webpage, which I thought was kind of sad. Uh, I think it might have mentioned Orson Welles, but I, I wish there'd be maybe some recognition for William Castle because he, he was there for a period of time. Now, his very first gimmick was actually while he was working there at the Stony Creek Theater. So he hired a German actress, and upon learning that there was apparently like regulations that theater guild regulations that said that a foreign born actor or actress could not do stage plays unless it was a play written in their original language. Really, I'm not quite sure if it was specific to any one country, but it was a regulation. And so he goes ahead and hires her and then says, well, yes, she's going to to appear in this well-known German play. Now, I'm not going to pronounce the name of the play. (laughs) It translates to not for children, but there was no play. He ends up having to write the play for her to appear on stage within the guidelines. The stunt comes in in the fact that apparently... Nazi Germany sent this actress an invitation to a Munich performance. He heard about this and he came up with this outrageous publicity stunt. He had claimed that he had sent a telegram to Adolf Hitler turning down the request. He portrayed his star as the girl who said no to Hitler. He then went ahead and he released it to the newspapers And then he vandalized his own theater with swastikas, claiming that, I don't know, German spy cell or whatever had gone ahead and done some type of vandalism. Maybe it was just people anti-German. I don't know. It was a publicity stunt to get all these people riled up. Oh, my gosh, you know, they're protesting against her or what have you, when in fact he was the one that did it all along. But you know what? It worked. It ensured the play's success. And the gimmicks idea were kind of set on the back burner following that, but it would percolate because it would be a while before he would do that again. Clearly at the start of his career, he understood showmanship. He understood how to get, as they say, butts in the seats. And he pulled it off and he would certainly do it again, although it would take a few years. At the age of 23, he left for Hollywood, and he began to work for Harry Cohn at Columbia Pictures. He started work as a dialogue director while learning the business, and uh, he'd actually done a little bit of directing. He directed a short in 1939 called Coney Island and another short in 1943 called Black Marketing, but 
1943 is when he got his feature film debut, his true debut as a director. I researched from the words of the man himself in his memoir, William Castle, Step Right Up, I'm Going to Scare the Pants Off America. These are anecdotes and things that he experienced from his point of view. Yeah, I did just want to mention that when he went to Hollywood, that was sort of part of a quote unquote scam, just like it was when he met Orson Welles. He had a friend that knew him from his theater work who was going to Hollywood and somehow he worked his way into Harry Cohn's office, unknown, ended up beginning a professional relationship with him for many, many years. I just think it's important to note that these opportunities he made himself by sometimes being a little, I don't know, a salesman for sure, a salesman of himself. Oh, he was definitely a salesman. To make certain things happen in his career, he would take leaps of faith and oftentimes putting his own family's financial well-being at risk in order to secure funding, banking on the fact that this is going to be a success. Luckily, it was in most cases, and then it would go on to to open even more doors for him. But it you mentioned the job of dialogue director. He didn't really know what that was in, yeah. in his first job. And in this memoir, he says he found out later the day exactly what a dialogue director does. He's strictly an apprentice director. He cues the actors, but he makes no suggestions whatsoever. He keeps out of the director's hair, goes for coffee and sandwiches, and generally remains as invisible as possible. They actually have a story about being a dialogue director in a great documentary that we'll mention several times here called Spine Tingler, which I highly recommend. I'm drawing a blank as to who the actor was. His first day, he kind of yelled cut during a production to interrupt and say, well, he didn't, he's wrong. And he was chastised accordingly until... The actor was like, no, actually, he was right. I read the dialogue wrong. So he would learn. Yeah, actually, in what a very embarrassing way that could have cost him his job. But ultimately, I think the actor agreeing with him saved his job. So proceed. And thank you for letting me interrupt. Well, thank you for adding that additional information. His feature film debut, 1943's uh, The Chance of a Lifetime, would be the first of his eventual 66 films as a director. I guess technically his third film, his third directing uh, credit, but his first feature film. Uh, he'd also eventually produce 25 of his films uh, in addition to uh, writing, uh, whether he was credited or uncredited, and uh, also at times doing some acting. We'll, we'll kind of get into a little bit. Certainly down the road, he would do kind of the Hitchcock cameo thing. But in some cases, I think taking the cameo to a whole other level in some of his films in, in ways that Hitchcock never did. Hitchcock sometimes would just appear on screen very, very briefly, whereas uh, well, and Castle would give himself some dialogue. I, I know at least in one film towards the end of his career, he gave himself kind of like a full-fledged character rather than just a, an on-screen cameo. Now, 1944, he did a film called The Whistler. This was actually based on a very popular radio program of the day in which the Whistler is kind of a narrator. Think of a, a suspense thriller, film noir for the radio, 
where the whistler is, is narrating and talking about a particular person who's finding themselves in a, you know, whether it's a crime situation, but there's always some type of twist or big reveal or something. It's a great radio show. And they had a series of films. I think there was a total of six films in the series. And he ended up directing the first four films. Carl and I both watched it and actually both loved it. And I was a little surprised because it was, a little darker. It was kind of a, a film noir type film, which is not really Carla's cup of tea, but she actually enjoyed this. And I appreciated the Whistler film because the Whistler actually becomes like a supernatural character at one point where there's a killer played by uh, J. Carol Nash. And I guess that's a bit of a spoiler in a weird way, but it's kind of like once he's revealed as the killer, it's kind of like, well, it's so obvious that he was the killer. It's a great movie, and and the Whistler is actually being heard by the killer, which is an interesting take. They don't do that on the radio show. Richard Dix, the actor, stars in all films, but plays a different role in each film, kind of like Lon Chaney Jr. in the Inner Sanctum Mysteries films, where he plays a different character. Uh, I don't know if Inner Sanctum patterned that after the Whistler, but considering they're both based on radio programs, I'm thinking The Whistler was an inspiration for Inner Sanctum. Anyway, William Castle would gain a reputation for directing films under budget, which, of course, always makes the Hollywood producers happy. Hey, you're under budget. He is a notorious tightwad, finding any way to kind of squeeze a little more out of the budget, but he would always get the job done. Now, he served as an associate producer on The Lady from Shanghai, 1947, which was directed and uh, starred Orson Welles. That Orson Welles connection was still there. And around this time in 1948, he married Ellen, and I'm not sure how to pronounce the last name, Fake or Faik, F-A-I-C-K. And it would be uh, his one and only for the rest of his life. They would eventually have two children, Georgie and Terry, We'll talk more about one of his uh, daughters later on. He was a family man from the get-go. He was also a workaholic. So when he wasn't doing a film, when he wasn't trying to find a film, when he wasn't trying to find budget you know, or funding for a film, he was with his family. He loved his family, and those were the two passions in his life. And if he wasn't one place, he was definitely always with the other. Now, by the early 1950s, he was doing Westerns such as Conquest of Cochise. He was doing flicks like The Saracen Blade. In 1956, he even directed an episode of Science Fiction Theater, a rather popular show of the day, which was almost more science fact than science fiction at times. I've seen a few episodes. Some people love it. I've struggled with the few that I've seen, but there's I know Vincent Price did, I think, at least one episode, and I wanted to try to seek that out. It's an interesting series. And then we get to 1958. I have a little overlay of this, nothing terribly specific, but just to kind of understand his evolution, I guess. So like we said, he started with Harry Cohn, which was Columbia Pictures and was in a three-year contract with them. But in part of the contract of directors at that time, they could be loaned out to different studios. In 1944, he went to Poverty Row and worked for the King Brothers and made When Strangers Marry. The lady from Shanghai, actually, he found the script Columbia turned down, and so he offered it to Orson Welles. In 1949, a movie called Johnny Stool Pigeon, he 
went to Universal International. And it was actually right before that, Harry Cohn said that they wanted him because he had developed this reputation and had some hits. At that time, when did he get married? Do you have the year? 1948. Okay, so yes, they were actually on their honeymoon. And Harry Cohn had called and said, come back. I've got a a movie we need you to start on on Monday. His wife would like have none of it. Like, (laughs) and he's like, honey, this is my career. And she didn't care. And she was secretly sending telegrams back that were misleading, I guess, as as far as his intentions of going back. But his real intention was, tell me the movie, tell me the star, and then I'll decide if I'm going to come back from my honeymoon in Italy. He ended up going back. They went back. He went in on Monday morning and Cohn had decided not to make the movie. (laughs) So soon after that was when Cohn told him that Universal International wanted him. And he said, what do you want to do, Bill? I'm putting two and two together on what had just happened on his honeymoon. He chose to go to Universal International. He did make several movies there. And then for a while, he worked with Sam Katzman, who should be familiar. In 1953, they made one called Fort Ty. And then eventually, he ended up back at Columbia. And I think that brings us up to the next place you were going to go. 1958. This was his first real genre film. I mean, The Whistler is is a suspense thriller, but Macabre is is not full-fledged horror, but it's got some horrific moments in it. Certainly a feel for what's coming, certainly what's coming in 1959. This was kind of laying the groundwork for William Castle and where he was headed. Your attention, please. During every suspenseful moment of the running of the motion picture Macabre, the life of everyone in this theater will be insured by Lloyds of London for $1,000 against death by fright. However, even Lloyds of London will not grant coverage for any person with a known condition or for suicide by any member of the audience. No, what has he done, Polly? Tell me. Go on. She's not dead. Not yet. That she's in a good big coffin for her. Don't worry about being scared to death. Your heirs will collect after you've gone. Where is she? I can hear her breathing. Where is she? Bring someone with you to see this motion picture. You'll want some live hands to hold during the performance. And you won't want to go home alone after it's finished, if you're able to go home. And we won't worry about your telling anybody the ending of this picture, because you may not be around to tell. are the living members of its cast. If you meet any of them in a dark alley, we advise you to scream for help if it's not too late to scream.
when his daughter is assumed to be buried alive by an unknown madman or woman, Dr. Rodney Barrett finds himself in a race against time to find and rescue her. As the clock ticks, graves are opened, as well as the old wounds of various characters who may or may not be responsible for committing this horrendous crime, and possibly others. Macabre was written by Rob White, directed, of course, by William Castle, runs 72 minutes. The production company, and I don't really know if we mentioned when he started his own production company, but was William Castle Productions, and it was released by Allied Artist Pictures, certain date unknown. You normally throw this at me. I'll throw this at you before we get into the specifics of of the film. What are your initial thoughts on... 1958's Macabre. I had seen this before, I believe, gosh, 2009 or something. It had been quite a while. And I don't really remember how I liked it. I rated it, I think, a six. So, you know, a little bit above average. I watched it again and I like it. It's good. I have some issues with it that we'll probably talk about. Yeah, it's a race against time. A lot of it feels like it's in real time. It's not really, I think, sections of it may be. It's not really a horror film. There is definitely one horrific image. I guess what I'm beating around the bush at is that he had his gimmick for this was the fright insurance. Every audience member was given an insurance certificate from Lloyd's of London, no less, guaranteeing a $1,000 payout if they died of fright. There was a disclaimer, though, it didn't cover people who already had heart conditions or who committed suicide. This, to me, seems like an odd film for that type of gimmick. To me, he's sort of promising more than he delivers. I mean, yeah, there is that terrifying image when they open the grave. But otherwise, there's not really much scary about it. Suspense, thriller, yeah. I wouldn't envision myself dying of fright, would you? No, no. I mean, yeah, there's the one scene, which I suppose 1958, there'd be some woman out there in suburbia who'd be, you know, possibly frightened. Uh, Certainly there's more horrific moments in like The Tingler or House on Haunted Hill coming up the next year that you could play that off of. The the gimmick was to get butts and seats. It was a good thriller. I guess the question was some people leaving the theater maybe a little disappointed. They weren't scared as much as they thought they were going to be, possibly. Nonetheless, I mean, the movie was hugely successful. It opened a lot of doors and it achieved exactly what it set out to do. It didn't necessarily frighten you or I now. I suppose it might have frightened a few people back then. It was a low-budget affair. Certainly, it played off that way. At times, it definitely didn't look like an A-level film. But William Castle, doing what he would often do, really squeezed a lot out of the meager budget that he did have. This movie really established William Castle. So it it, it achieved exactly what what he set out to do. The book really focuses on his desire And that's what the book is called. He wanted to scare the pants off America. And this was really, I think, his first opportunity to do that. And that, of course, started a a fantastic run for him. One of the things associated that with that in this book, he keeps talking about young people. 
I can't remember which movie it was. These test screenings were all an older audience and they hated it, but they brought in the kids and it was smash hit. That's also my question with this movie is because it has older characters. I don't know how this would appeal specifically to younger kids than it would adults. True. I don't know with the story. I don't know if there was really an opportunity to have younger characters. I mean, because the story wasn't, would be built around older characters for the most part. I could see teenagers back in the day. Oh my gosh. If you think of the poster and the, and the, and the trailer makes it look much more, much like a much different film, honestly. One could argue a little bait and switch almost because it's not quite the film that it's leading you to believe that it's going to be, but you'd have teenagers who would go see the film. They might still enjoy it, even though it wasn't necessarily like some of the other films of the day with teenage cast. I think the marketing would certainly get a lot of the teenagers into the theater. Probably, I don't know this as a speculation, being a salesman and it's all about getting that buck. I guess once he got him in there and got that buck, it didn't really matter. It didn't really matter. Yeah, I mean. I mean, he succeeded. And this was a huge gamble for William Castle because he mortgaged his home to finance this film. He had had a, a successful career up to that point. He had his wife and his children, had a home, he was established, and it did pay off. Unfortunately, not be the only time in his career that he would mortgage the family home. Both times it paid off for him. This one, of course, certainly starting his career into a whole new trajectory. Not only do you have the insurance policy, he would have fake nurses in the lobby that kind of feed into that. And he also, he went out and actively promoted the film himself. He went town to town. He would arrive in a coffin. He was a showman. Kind of like that Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland, let's have a show kind of thing. You know, he just, he channeled that and and it worked. It absolutely worked for this. You know, you hype up the trailer, you hype up the nurses in the lobby. Let's throw a possibility of, hey, if you die, well, you know, you're going to get money. I guess you wouldn't, your family might. Carnival show, Barker, getting you to come on in and see this to make sure they keep coming back. You did have to have some product. The movie itself, I actually thought was really good. It was a good suspense thriller. There was certainly some odd things. There were certainly some very controversial things that they threw in this movie. You've got very casual sex happening in this. So you've got a character by the name of Nancy, who is having an affair of, of sorts. I mean, with the police chief, Jim Tylo. When we introduced to her, she's blind and she she's driving a car, uh, which rather hilarious sequence. She's got a chauffeur played by the young Robert Colbert. Nick, the chauffeur, Jim Backus is playing the police chief. It's kind of difficult to see him in this role because you immediately think, oh, my gosh, that's that's Thurston Howell the third. And then you hear his voice and it's like, well, that kind of sounds like an evil version of Mr. Magoo. They go off what looks to be like in just like an abandoned warehouse to have sex. You don't see that much in 1958. That was something I would expect to see maybe in a 1960s film, mid to late 60s film. 1958, very early to have the casual sex thrown in. I know that it was being done in other films, but it was still not very common and not common in this type of film. 
But then they go a whole nother route later on when it's revealed that she is pregnant. You don't know who the father is. He doesn't know. I don't know. I mean, you know, it could be Jim. It could be Nick, the chauffeur. But she had also gone off and you kind of imply that she's having fun with everybody. That's the lifestyle that she wants to do. She she wants that to be carefree and just have fun. Well, she's with child and she tries to get Dr. Barrett to do an abortion. They never use that word, but it's all very clearly implied. He'll have no part of it. That's kind of dark for, for what is supposed to be kind of more of a lighthearted thriller Sadly, probably just as controversial for some people here in 2023. Castle would occasionally go down a darker side in some of his films. And we'll talk about some of those moments in other films. I think there was two sides to William Castle a little bit. There is certainly the more lighthearted side of Castle. But Castle did strive from a very, his ultimate goal was to do A-list films And he was willing to go, I think, towards a darker side to do that if it helped him achieve his ultimate goal. So we get a little hint of that here in this 1958 film. And I've got a little nitpick with that. And this is the trouble with watching movies multiple times is that I always see things I didn't see before. And sometimes it takes away from that spontaneity and I start getting nitpicky. This the whole thing we just told about Nancy was told in a flashback. And the things that is, it's told by her father, I think, when they're at the cemetery yeah. and it's a flashback. And the trouble I have with any flashback is like he wasn't there for a lot of that. So how does he know that's and I thought, oh, well, this is just a device to get us there. It doesn't really matter. We're just seeing a flashback. But then at the end to come back and have him conclude the conversation as if he's told that whole story. Yeah. I just, I can't imagine the daughter saying, Hey, I met up with the police chief today and Oh gosh, there was a warehouse. And they do that in films yeah. all the time. And it, it's a nitpick of my tone. It's like, okay, how would they have known all the fine details? Well, you just kind of have to imagine that he maybe revealed some of the details, but not all that we saw. And some of that's for our benefit. It depends on how the movie plays out. If there are certain things that are revealed that ends up really, you know, maybe like the person that's hearing it now knows something that they shouldn't know, that becomes a bigger problem. I don't think we get that here because certainly Dr. Barrett knows things that her father didn't know. And that's not anything I would have noticed unless I was scrutinizing. Yeah, but I know what you're talking about because that can be a nitpick of mine in some other films as well. The other nitpick, this is more than a nitpick. I found the movie a little slow. I mentioned the aspects of real time. It's so contradictory. Movies that are in real time are usually the most boring movies because things that unfold naturally in real life aren't always exciting every minute. Yeah. And they show clocks. And William Castle has a thing for clocks because yes, they're yeah. definitely in this. They're in The Nightwalker, And there's a thing in the book about that. You get the impression, okay, race against time, but then there's so much lollygagging around. And I just thought what might have helped that is number one, we've never met this girl that's missing. We've never seen her. We've never seen what an adorable, sweet creature you are, therefore, have not really any emotional attachment to her and don't really have a stake in where she is. We're trusting these characters who might be unreliable 
maybe a scene at the beginning where we see her and and then we realize, oh, how horrible. So, you know, someone took that sweet little girl. Well, there's no emotional the other, connection to her. Yeah. Really. And then the other thing is, like, maybe intersperse some of these clips showing her not where she is, but maybe a close up so that it looks like, oh, maybe she is buried alive. Maybe she's sleeping or maybe she's crying or something like that. But just remind us of what the stakes are going to be if yes. they don't. And I think that's probably the first time why I only rated it average or so. And and still this time it stuck with me that it just, especially in the cemetery scene, although there's some good jump scares and that one horrifying scene, it does drag for me. It does. And he, like you said, 72 minutes or whatever running time. Gosh, you couldn't shave too much more because then it'd be like a 60 minute film, which wasn't really a common thing in 1958. I mean, 60 minute films were certainly common in, in the 30s and, and early 40s, but by late 50s, no. To be honest, even a 72-minute running time was a little short for 1958. Films had gotten a little longer by that point. Now, for something good that I really like, and this is especially where they're in the nursing home, or nursing home, <laughs> in the funeral home, the flashing of the neon light outside on the street that illuminates the room and then it goes dark, illuminates and goes dark. Every time they show the clock, that same thing is happening. And at first I didn't really realize and I thought, oh, they're just doing that to emphasize the time and how it's later than it was. But I do think that that clock was in a specific place and was having the same effect with the flashing of the neon. I don't think we ever see the sign or the light that that light is coming from. We just kind of know it's there and it's causing this flashing. And I really like that because that did create some good atmosphere. Really good point. So something that gener- helped generate the atmosphere in this film was the music. The music was uneven. Les Baxter, legendary. Some of the greatest music of all time in film and in just the genre of theme music or mood music. Les Baxter's legendary. I found it odd, though, that there were some scenes at the beginning of the film that had no music. Like there was a scene where the car is coming up to the house. There's no background music at all, which was kind of odd. But then you get some scenes later on where there is some good music. I wouldn't say this is one of his best works. I don't know where to point the blame as far as why some of those scenes early on in the film were lacking in music. I don't know what the point behind that would have been other than maybe just a poor editorial choice. To me, it made some of those early scenes kind of fall flat uh, without some type of background music that was sorely needed. That's a good point. I remember seeing Les Baxter in the credits and it's like, oh, wow, that's going to be great. And then, I mean, to be honest, I couldn't tell you. you, you know more about the music that you just said than I even remember about it. It was just forgettable for me. So that is. It was, and sadly, it was. And not knocking less. As with any composer, I mean, you have good films and you have films that are just kind of more run of the mill or an assignment, so to speak. So I'm wondering if this maybe was just more of an assignment and he completed the work. I don't know. Was William Castle so tight on the budget? He only gave Les Baxter so much time and maybe it was like he didn't finish. I don't know. What did you think of the story and the twist and everything? I thought it was pretty solid. You're going to expect a fanciful twist. It's just inevitable. Not necessarily, yeah. I mean, not like uh, M. Night Shyamalan or anything where you, no. you, you're counting on it, but you just sort of expect it in a movie like this. I hated the idea of a midnight funeral. It's like, who oh, the hell does well, 
Yeah, that was another nitpicky thing, but they do drop a line real fast explaining that that's what whoever it was wanted. Okay, but if you decide to have a midnight funeral, Jeff, I'm not going to the graveyard <laughs> for your funeral, all right? I'll see you in the daytime. Yeah. It's just not going to go to a graveyard at midnight for a funeral. I don't care who it is. Yeah, I had in my notes to bring that up, and then they dropped that line. I'm like, well, all right, I guess. The schedule wasn't so full. That's the only time plot device to make sure we had this dramatic scene. And I get it, but it didn't seem very realistic to to have that. How'd you like the end credits? I thought that was really fun, but really kind of bizarre because it's like you have this really kind of dark film in, in certain elements. And then it's like coming across like you're watching a comedy almost or like a I, you know what I thought of was these are credits that I would expect in The Raven, you know, Roger Corman's mm. The Raven, which is a lighthearted horror comedy. But, you know, yeah. right from the get go, you know what you're getting with that movie and it never strays. And there's comedic moments throughout the whole film. Those are the kind of end credits. Almost reminded me, too, of the old PBS series Mystery. Yeah, with Vincent Price was the host for many years. And I think Diana Rigg took over at one point. That same type of off-the-wall animation, which was unique. I loved it, but yet it seemed out of place a little bit. Talk about beating a dead horse. At the end, there's a voiceover. Please do not reveal the ending of this picture to your friends as it will destroy their enjoyment of it. I kind of agree with that. Yes. Um, Then, even after the end credits, it's we trust there have been no casualties and that you're all in the best of health. So, I mean, that's a little bit, that was yeah, fun. That is a weird, I'm just not thinking of it. That's very tongue in cheek. And you're right. The movie is pretty dark. So that's an interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's fun, but it's out of place. I would consider this kind of mid-range William Castle. It's not the worst that he did. It's not the best, but it's it's right there in the middle. It's it's enjoyable. It shows a promise of, of what's to come. It's certainly worth checking out. It certainly is worth with worth tracking it down and, and getting a taste. I would watch this before watching some of the other films because this gives you promise of what's going to come. I don't think anything in this movie will say, gosh, I don't want to watch any more William Castle. There are some other films that I would say do not make this your first William Castle film because you won't want to watch anymore. This one, I would say, yeah, give it a watch and then watch the next two that come right after. William Castle really starts knocking it out of the park. I'd say this one, to go with the baseball analogy, he didn't knock it out of the park, but I would say he got a a solid two base hit out of this one. He was in the game with it and and learned what he needed to do. He's doing a home run in, in the next couple of films. Wow, I'm so impressed, all those sports references. I know. I and it's know, my coinciding with uh, opening day. And That's kind of where I went with that, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, okay. This is a sort of a cycle, and to me, it runs like from here till probably Mr. Sardonicus. I envision that most people probably see a peak. Me, it's up and down the whole way. I know that's probably contradictory because some of these movies that I didn't get as much, I know are truly beloved. He didn't consistently make this type of movie no. regularly past like Mr. Sardonicus. Yes, there's a roller coaster ride. There's a strange detour that he takes and then gets back. Then we reach a point where you know, it's a downhill slide pretty consistently. I want to talk about the cast. We have William Prince 
playing the uh, the lead role, Dr. Rodney Barrett. A lot of credits, 155 credits. He was in a Hitchcock film, Family Plot, the end of Hitchcock's career. He was also in The Stepford Wives, some early television shows. He was in The Inner Sanctum and Tales of Tomorrow. He was also in a show you and I love to talk about, Dallas. Jim Backus as the police chief, Jim Tylo, definitely comes off as a major ass at the beginning of the film, but definitely has a reason to as, as the plot goes on and we realize without giving any spoilers, he's got some good reasons for it. 254 credits, but he did a ton of TV work and some film work. He's also in another William Castle film we're going to talk about shortly, Zots. He has a rather interesting role in that one. So we have Christine White as Nancy Weatherby, who eventually does marry the police chief. Lots of TV work. She did some Hitchcock, One Step Beyond, Thriller, Twilight Zone. Jacqueline Scott plays Polly, the nurse. Lots of TV work from her. Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock, Outer Limits, Planet of the Apes, as well as a uh, film called Empire of the Ants, directed by Mr. Big. Remember that. We'll have that (laughs) later in the show. Susan Morrow played Sylvia. Got that one right this time. (laughs) Stevenson. Lots of TV work, uh, was in Cat Women on the Moon, a movie that I made it through once and will never watch again. That one was rough. Philip Tong, I believe it's pronounced, he plays old man Jode Weatherby. He was in Invisible Invaders from 59, which I saw years ago. I remember enjoying kind of a mid-level film. He was also in One Step Beyond. He also played Mr. Shellhammer in Miracle on 34th Street, a film that I watch every single year. Jonathan Kidd played Ed Quigley, the funeral director, familiar face, character actor, and a ton of TV work, also in uh, Thriller, and was also in an episode of Batman. Dorothy Morris played Alice Weatherby, the wife of Dr. Rodney Barrett. Uh, This was her only genre film, did a variety of film and television work. We mentioned Robert Colbert played Nick the Chauffeur, uncredited, lots of TV work. Sci-fi fans will remember him from the Time Tunnel. And Ellen Corby, yes, Grandma Walton, plays Miss Cushions. I'm not sure Ellen Corby was ever young. I don't think I've ever seen her young. And this, 58, my gosh, this is how many years before the Waltons? She plays a, I don't say daycare provider, I guess a babysitter of sorts. Housekeeper. Ellen Corby, everyone knows who she is. You mentioned Rob White. Rob White did the screenplay. He also did several other screenplays, writing uh, House and Haunted Hill, The Tingler, 13 Ghosts, and Homicidal. This was the first of a stretch that he worked with uh, William Castle. This was based on a novel by Anthony Boucher. I don't know how in sync with the novel it was, but nonetheless, a uh, popular novel of the day. Do you have anything else to add as far as the cast and crew? I don't believe so. I would say Macabre, I would give it a thumbs up. I would also give Macabre a thumbs up. <laughs> it's a fun film. It's not William Castle's best. It's not his worst. It'll give you a promise of what's to come. We are in agreement. Following Macabre, uh, he did some television work. He didn't go right into his next set of films. He did an episode of Man with a Camera, which is a Charles Bronson series that I've never seen. Also did some episodes of a show called Men of Annapolis. But then 1959, he's hitting the big time now because his next two films star the legendary Vincent Price. And I think the next two films 
are the best of his films. I think the gimmicks, the films, maybe it's Vincent Price being in them, but we're hitting A-level here. Although these aren't A-level films, we think of them, they weren't at the time. We have House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler. And the gimmicks also are in full swing with these films. So House of Haunted Hill was filmed in Emergio, or Emergo, I think as his daughter calls it in the documentary. This essentially was a blow-up skeleton with lights on it that flew across the ceiling of the movie theater, kind of over the heads of the moviegoers at one point in the film. So legend has it that once kids realized that it was just a blow-up skeleton that they would end up start throwing boxes or popcorn stuff at it as it flew across the theater. This was highly successful film. It is public domain, has been for years. Good quality prints have always existed in public domain. It's a readily available film. The next one was The Tingler, which came later in the year. This was filmed in Percepto, the legendary one where you would put buzzers under random seats in the theater and essentially shock you as The Tingler was loose in the theater. And the interesting thing is that they incorporate some great stuff in this in this where Vincent Price is screaming at the movie theater audience and the tingler is loose in the theater. I would also kind of call this a gimmick, the gimmick where the blood in the sink and the tub are red on a black and white film. I've talked about this on the show before. I saw it when I was a kid. My dad had fallen asleep. He didn't believe me the next day. <laughs> Months later, they replayed it on the creature feature with cremation mortem. And that scene came on and I looked at dad and said, see, I was right. And I was vindicated. Every time I see the tingler, I think of my dad and think of that experience of proving that I was not nuts. Two great, truly classic films. 13 ghosts would follow in 1960. This was filmed in Illusiono. And this was the really cool idea of a ghost viewer. Essentially, there was the only way to see the ghosts or to not see the ghost. It was done with the blue-red screen technology, but it's not 3D, but essentially the ghost viewer had that blue-red. I say blue-green, blue-red. If you wanted to see the ghost, you'd look through the blue, I think, would, would take away the ghost. And the red, you'd see the ghost or maybe vice versa. I can't remember. But it was a, it is a cool idea, a little ghost viewer. It wasn't as fancy in the movie, which was this device that they kind of like glasses, but it was a cool little handheld thing and you could do up the screen. And I know the DVD has the same thing. You can watch it that way if you so choose. It's a fun little gimmick that still kind of works, actually. A really fun film as well. I don't think it's as good as House on Haunted Hill or The Tingler, but personally, it's, it's definitely right up there. Just real quick, what are your thoughts on on these three films? The House on Haunted Hill by far is my favorite of those. Tingler and 13 Ghosts are just a notch below, and I consider them about the same as far as my enjoyment level. Okay. Legend has it that Alfred Hitchcock was inspired by the success of William Castle and Roger Corman and made Psycho in 1960. I question that a little bit. I'm not sure how much Hitchcock was truly inspired. That's the legend. Now, I do see the reverse happening is that William Castle was clearly inspired by the success of Psycho when he would make his next film, Homicidal, in 1961. 
There's a lot of familiar elements, a lot of familiar elements, like driving in the car. And there's a lot in this film, and I'm not giving away any spoilers. I'd never seen this movie until the last couple of weeks. I was not expecting what I got, and I was actually really blown away. I was pleasantly surprised by this film. It has a fright break that gives you 45 seconds to leave the theater and go to what was called Coward's Corner if you were too terrified (laughs) to watch the rest of the film. It's a pretty interesting plot twist for 1961, if you think about it, but it is very much like there are similarities, differences, but similarities to Psycho. Actress Jean Arliss, who is one of the featured actresses in the film, was actually actress Joan Marshall. Joan Marshall used the name Jean Arliss to separate this film from the rest of her career. Joan Marshall played Lily Munster in the original Munster's pilot. Once you see it, it's like, oh, nothing compared to you, <laughs> Carlo. She also played, and if you were wondering, here's your Star Trek connection. She played prosecutor Ariel Shaw in the first season classic Trek episode, Court Martial. She played a former fling of Captain Kirk, who ends up prosecuting him. And by the end of it, shock, surprise, he's kissing the girl on the bridge of the ship. <laughs> anyway, she has a very interesting role in this one, and I'll leave it at that. Then 1961, uh, later in that year, we have Mr. Sardonicus. The gimmick of this one was the punishment poll, where you had the opportunity to choose whether Mr. Sardonicus has received enough punishment or should he get a little bit more. Supposedly, one castle filmed two different endings, but I think we all know that that's not possible because movie theaters wouldn't have been able to switch the endings. However, another uh, supposed legend is that he did film a different version to be played in drive-ins to where people would not do the cards, but would do their flash their lights, their headlights. Hmm. I don't know how much you want to believe this because apparently that footage has not resurfaced anywhere. So is that just legend? Is it just somebody came up with it and now it's become pseudo fact? I don't know. Until we see the footage, I question whether or not that was actually the case. However, the card thing really wouldn't work in a theater and he would have to have filmed a different segment. And I know if you're when you watch the film, when he's doing the reveal, kind of where he's like talking to the audience and stuff, there is a jump in the film. And it does look like the film quality changes a little bit to where I can see that that would be the moment that they Hmm. insert another version. Richard, you said you were blown away by homicidal that. So you liked it. You weren't just surprised that it wasn't what you thought it was. I really did enjoy it. Okay. I did enjoy. Also, Glenn Corbett, I should, another Star Trek connection, Glenn Corbett, who played Zephram Cochran in the second season classic Trek episode, Metamorphosis, plays a lead role in Homicidal. So I enjoyed it. Okay, well, I need to watch that again then because of all the William Castle movies I've seen, I rated that the lowest. I don't remember anything about it, but since you liked it so much, I think it's probably time to give that a revisit. I did enjoy it. And Mr. Sardonic is a group in that with the Tingler and 13 Ghosts, I think. It's different. It's a period piece, right? You're getting ready to come to a couple that I have not seen. So I wanted to just share what I felt about those two. Mr. Sardonicus was the end of the peak for me of, of William Castle. House and Haunted Hill and the Tingler were clearly at the top for me personally. And then 13 Ghosts, maybe, maybe just a notch below that. 
And then Homicidal is maybe a notch below. I think Mr. Sardonicus, I, I probably like more than Homicidal. I would put Mr. Sardonicus on the same level as 13 Ghosts. I'm still on that roller coaster because I know, like I said, I haven't seen the next couple movies, but then I do have another little climb and then a decline. And then at that last decline is downhill from there. Yeah. At this point, we're starting to get to an uneven period for William Castle. He made an odd choice in 1962 to go a a comedy route with a, a rather odd film called Zots. Tom Poston, Tom Poston, Poston, Poston. Poston, thank you. Who I've always, I remember him as, as what's his name from Newhart. He was also in Mork and Mindy. And he's clearly playing a comedic role here. Maybe not quite as comedic as, as he would in those. But it's an odd film. The gimmick in this one was that the moviegoers got a magic coin, a plastic magic coin that looked just like the coin that gives him the power in the movie not really a gimmick, more like a giveaway. There's a lot of forced comedy in Zots. Jim Backus is in it, kind of plays a bad guy of sorts. There was some moments that were kind of funny and other moments that just were very, very forced. And at the end of it, to me, it's a pretty big drop in quality compared to what his previous five films were. But you haven't seen Zots. I have not. However, while you were talking, I had, I know it's bad to do it during the podcast, but you mentioned something. And if I don't look at it right away, I'll I'll forget. But there is a Zotz Amulet Medallion movie promo coin on eBay. Only $200. Considering the age and stuff, the fact that that exists, considering that it was probably a throwaway thing. It is really cool, though. It looks, it's not like a flat coin. There's a raised area that's like cut out. It's hard to describe, but it looks. That's like the coin in the, in the movie. Oh, okay. So they must've had a mold, a plastic mold, and just made a bunch of those. It was an amulet. So it was like, I think it came like with, they said a little hole on top. An uneven film at best. So 1963, the next film he does is 13 Frightened Girls. Have you seen this one? I have not. All right. Let me share my thoughts on this one. Uh, I did not care for it. (laughs) It, I want to say of the William Castle films that I've seen, and I'll mention the few that I haven't, uh, it's my least favorite William Castle film. Kathy Dunn is the lead actress in this one. She apparently was well-known. She did the stage version of The Sound of Music. There's not a gimmick with this one. He did a promotional gimmick, but not a real gimmick in the film. The promotional gimmick was that he was looking for young girls from 13 countries to play the daughters of diplomats. Ultimately, it wasn't quite true because an American played a girl from Liberia. (laughs) They fudged a little bit on that. Kathy Dunn, though, I don't know how old she was at the time this movie was made. She's supposed to play a 16-year-old. She might have been older than 16. She looked like she was about 12. She's got the hots for this older guy, and she's putting her arm around him and trying to kiss him. And yeah, yeah, (laughs) it just did not work for me. Very odd. This, to me, is a Gidget spy movie, and it's not a good one. For me, personally, I just did not care for it at all. She was just too young for the role a lot of it just didn't play off as believable. And it was just an odd film. The title and the marketing 
does not match the film at all because there's not 13 frightened girls. They're never frightened at any point in the movie. Kathy Dunn, I suppose, was frightened. And there's, you know, maybe one other girl who was frightened at one point, but I guess the other 11 girls, no, they were never frightened. In fact, they kind of play a part in the end of the movie and they're actually fairly brave for what they do. And I kept getting thrown because the villain of the piece, so to speak, was played by the same actor who played Woe Fat on Hawaii Five-0 in the 1970s. So I kept saying, oh, that's Woe Fat. And he kind of plays a kinder version of him, but nonetheless, he's the bad guy. Not a great film for me. We go right from this one to The Old Dark House later in 1963. An odd collaboration. This is a William Castle Hammer film, which doesn't really feel like a Hammer film. And also doesn't really feel like a William Castle film. I suppose if you had to choose one, I would say it feels more like a William Castle film than a Hammer film. It is based on the same novel that the original 1932 Boris Karloff film is based on. And it's nothing like the original. The original is significantly better, significantly (laughs) stressing that word. Some fun moments in the old dark house. I didn't hate this movie. I certainly liked it better than 13 Frightened Girls. (laughs) It's an odd movie. There's some odd forced comedy. William Castle doing straightforward comedy is not his forte, as I would discover later on as well. It's one thing to do a movie like House on Haunted Hill, which had some comedic elements to it at times, or The Tingler had a few chuckles or 13 ghosts. But the comedy is certainly secondary to the horror. When the comedy is the forefront, I hate to say it, but I don't think William Castle succeeds. And The Old Dark House ends up being a very uneven film for me. Have you seen The Old Dark House? I have seen it several times, and I don't mind it. I enjoy it. I can't even begin to compare it to the original, but on its own, I, I enjoy it. I enjoyed it. Like I said, it's just not my favorite film. I guess I just, after seeing so many of these, like one after the other, it's like, sometimes I'm there. Are other films are so fresh in my mind. You got Mr. Sardonicus, and then we take a definitely a downhill stretch with Zots. I'd say even farther with 13 Frightened Girls, but then you kind of bounce back a little bit with the old Dark House. And then 1964, he makes a comeback of sorts when he does Straight Jacket. This is the film with Joan Crawford. No gimmick with this one because Joan Crawford really was the, the selling point. Now, they did at the very last minute give away some paper axes as kind of, a, again, kind of a handout to the audience. And I think that was William Castle's last minute think, oh, my gosh, we need something and we need a gimmick. He got so used to the gimmicks, he kind of panicked a little bit that he wasn't doing a gimmick on this one. Joan Crawford, what a piece of work Joan Crawford is. Watch the promotional trailer for this. She's front and center, right in the middle of William Castle. I forget who the other guy was. She goes on. It's our film and we're doing it. We can do whatever we want. And Joan Crawford was very much what you would, would expect. The stories of Joan Crawford behind the scenes, she pulled a lot of strings William Castle had to bend over backwards. Actresses were fired that who played her daughter in this film because they overshadowed Joan and Joan couldn't have that. And the final moment was really supposed to be the daughter, which 
try not to give anything away, but there's a reveal that happens. But Joan Crawford didn't want her overshadowing her. So they filmed this whole other tacked on scene at the end with her and, and uh, Leif Erickson that was originally not in the script. And that was so that the final you, thing you get is this great moment from Joan Crawford who reveals and come, comes off as the hero of the piece. That's all her because her ego needed to be fed and she needed to make sure that people's last image of the film was on Joan. All of that said, I really do enjoy Straight Jacket. Featured an uncredited Lee Majors just a year or so before he got the part of Heath on The Big Valley, which I thought was interesting. I've seen Straight Jacket before. This is a revisit for me, and I do enjoy this one. I'm not a huge Joan Crawford fan, but I do enjoy Straight Jacket, and I think it's it's uh, definitely a, a return to form almost. Not to the level of House and Haunted Hill or The Tingler for me, but certainly much better than his previous three films were. This was a big return. This is one of my favorites. I really enjoy Straight Jacket. Yeah, definitely a fun, fun movie. So late 1964, we're up to our next film, and that would be The Night Walker. I do want to just real quick wrap up this section by talking about in the book during this section of his biggest movies and his biggest gimmicks. A lot of his talks are trying to convince studios to do the gimmicks, promising that they'll pay off and you know he'll get butts in seats and all that. So that's interesting. He does talk a little bit about Joan Crawford. He also added that that time she was married to what the CEO of Pepsi or something. Yeah. So there is a lot of Pepsi product placement in that movie. He's actually in the movie too. He, he oh, plays, oh wow. I think he played the doctor. She cast him as the doctor without, uh, yes, telling William Castle. So. But sadly, there's not a word about the old dark house. And I think that would have been interesting to get his take on how he got involved with that. I think maybe that's a bit telling in itself that if he didn't talk about the old dark house, that might <laughs> yeah, not. Well, he, yeah, he doesn't talk a lot about any movie. And there's a lot of movies he doesn't talk at all about. What are dreams? What do they mean? When you dream, you wander into another world where everything is strange and terrifying. When you dream, you become a Nightwalker. The Nightwalker. And now, a warning from William Castle, producer of The Nightwalker. Do you know that a dream can kill you? Gruesome thought, isn't it? Taylor, Barbara Stanwyck, together again in The Night Walker. When her husband dies and she's haunted by nightmares of both him and a handsome young lover, Irene Trent becomes increasingly certain that her dreams are real. She seeks the help of her late husband's attorney, Barry Moreland, and finding evidence that she's not going crazy. Will they prove she's sane, or will she be lost forever in a smoky dreamscape? Richard, I know we just heard the trailer from The Night Walker, but let's take a pause and why don't you set the stage for us? Tell us what else was going on in entertainment about the time Night Walker was released. The release date we have for The Night Walker would be, I believe, December 30th, 1964, end of the year. So it's the post-holiday time. 
So I picked a, a few dates from that first week or so of January 1965. The top songs for the week of January 2nd, 1965. There's a couple of songs not in the top 10 yet, but would be the next week. And they are two well-known popular songs still played today. At number 14, moving up 20 spots from last week's number 34, mm. was You Lost That Love and Feeling by the Righteous Brothers. It would go on to number nine next week and would eventually spend two weeks at number one. Uh, the song at number 12, this was the highest debut of the week for the top 40. It was number 41 the week before. So that's a huge leap. Downtown by Petulia Clark. Hmm. Which I actually love that song. I do too. It would be number five the next week. And it would go on also to spend two weeks at number one. Now, while we know those two songs quite well, I'm fairly certain you will not know songs 10, 9, or 8. Number 10 is a song called The Wedding by Julie Rogers. Have you ever heard of it? Never. As I do each time, your assignment is to go to YouTube after this and listen. And the challenge is, can you make it to the end of the song? I couldn't. I tapped. Did you know it once you heard it or you nope. still didn't know it? No, never heard okay. it. And there's a reason why it doesn't get played. <laughs> Basically, a woman just talking about her wedding day. It was a top 10 hit. People loved it in 1964, 65. Number nine, The Jerk by The Larks. Yeah. I assume yeah. that's a dance, not a person. I know, but <laughs> and I guess it kind of was, but it wasn't the song I expected it to be. I think mm. maybe another version of it. And now the song at number eight. How do I describe this song without singing on the podcast? Mm. I really have to sing, folks. Amen by The Impressions. And I'm like, not familiar with this. So the first thing we Googled was a clip from apparently the beginning of the song, from like an early 70s version that The Impressions did. And as they're starting off the beginning of this song, they, they are getting, and I don't know, it might have been a church congregation, getting them in sync because they started clapping their hands really fast and saying spirit clap or something along those lines. And it was uh, painful, folks. Then so we listen to the song. I'm sorry, it's a weird song. You've probably heard this maybe in movies or something where people are going, amen, hey. Oh, yeah, sing that in church. Okay, well, that's what this song is. It starts off with that, but in the background, it's like a weird marching tune in the background to amen and marching and like in thinking of like you know onward christian soldiers and then it goes into talking about the birth of the baby jesus so this might have been a christmas popular tune in 1954 not a song that gets played much on the golden oldies stations today and there's a reason seek that out if you so choose the rest of the top 10, I think people will know a lot better. Number seven, She's Not There by the Zombies. If you don't know it by the title, oh, yeah. you'll know it as soon as you start playing it. Uh, number six, Going Out of My Head by Little Anthony and the Imperials. And then going out of my head. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Number five, Love Potion number nine mm -hmm. by the Searchers. Number four, She's a Woman by the Beatles. Hmm. Familiar once I heard it, it is not 
one of those Beatles songs that gets played ad nauseum. True Beatles fans will probably say, oh, I know what right away. I love a lot of Beatles stuff, but it's not one that usually pops up at the top of a lot of lists. But still, it was number four. Number three, Mr. Lonely by Bobby Vinton. You might not know the title, but as soon as you play it, you'll know what it is. Number two, Come See About Me by The Supremes. And number one, guarantee you know this one, I Feel Fine by The Beatles. Beatlemania still going pretty strong at this point. Two top 10 hits. Those were the top songs for the week of January 2nd, 1965. Now, if you went to the box office, you would know why the Nightwalker didn't stand a chance of being number one at the box office. Number one for the uh, period of January 6th, 1965, was the third film in the Sean Connery 007 series, Goldfinger. Goldfinger was number one for the second of an eventual seven weeks at number one. Most people refer to this as definitive James Bond. Many people call it the best James Bond film. It's my personal favorite. I also think the score is the best James Bond score. Goldfinger, huge at the box office. There were two huge musicals also playing at the box office. After seven weeks at number one, My Fair Lady came back to number one. It had spent seven weeks at number one in late 1964. Then Goldfinger came along for seven weeks. And then My Fair Lady came back to spend another eight weeks at number one for an eventual 15. Once My Fair Lady said goodbye, another musical, which had been out for a few weeks, had finally decided to take up the slack, and that was The Sound of Music, which would spend a total of 10 weeks at number one. Do the math. Nightwalker (laughs) didn't stand a chance. A lot of huge hits at the box office. I wonder, though, if any people went to go see any of those films. Back then, there would have been lines to see those films, and people said, I guess we'll we'll get two tickets to see The Nightwalker. (laughs) I don't know. If you decided not to listen to the radio or go to the box office or movie theater, stay home and watch TV Friday, January 1st, 1965. On ABC, a lot of sitcoms on ABC that night, there was the latest episode of The Farmer's Daughter. This was a comedy starring Inger Stevens and William Wyndham, who played Commodore Decker on Star Trek, The Doomsday Machine. Mm-hmm. This ran for 101 episodes. It was based, wow. loosely based on a 1947 film. So this was a hugely successful series. The Adams Family was next. So a hugely popular series, which, of course, featured music by Vic Mizzy. Remember that name. Then we had a, another sitcom called Valentine's Day. This was a comedy with Tony Franciosa. I think I say that. This lasted 34 episodes. Believe it or not, that was just one season. Remember back then, TV seasons could last 30 episodes. Valentine's Day was one and done. One season, it was canceled. Valentine's Day has been forgotten. And the night rounded out with 12 O'Clock High. This was a World War II drama. Robert Lansing, who played (laughs) Harry Seven on Star Trek and Assignment Earth. He was the lead star in 12 O'Clock High. If you wanted to tune into CBS, you could watch the latest episode of a Western called Rawhide. This was in its next to last season. Clint Eastwood was still the second lead in the fall of 1965. He would take the lead for the last 13 episodes of the show before it was canceled. And then, of course, Clint went off 
I think he had a movie career. I don't know whatever <laughs> happened to that guy. Next was the latest episode of Gomer Pyle, USMC. And then an episode of Slattery's People with Richard Crenna and Ed Asner. Hmm. Over at NBC, it was football with the Orange Bowl. And for you sports ball fans, here's a spoiler. Texas beat Alabama 21 to 17. That's what was on TV January 1st, 1965. What I found interesting was most of those shows were playing new episodes. Would never happen today. Think about it, though. Back in the day, TV shows did run roughly 30 episodes. Those seasons lasted a lot longer. And for the most part, once the season started, you wouldn't get repeats until the summer months. You might get a preemption for the holidays for a week or so, but typically speaking, once the season started, repeats were not the norm. If you missed an episode during the regular season, you might not even catch it on repeats because repeat was only roughly three months long before before the new season started. There we go. That's what your options were at the start of 1965. The Nightwalker. What? I was going to say that takes us to the Nightwalker. Oh, yeah. Written by Robert Block. Directed. Oh, you know who directed it? William Castle. (laughs) Go figure. Running time, 86 minutes. It was, again, William Castle Productions. We talked about the release date. It was released by Universal Pictures. What did you think of The Nightwalker? Well, this was my second viewing. If I remember correctly, Vince over at the B-Movie cast covered this years ago. That's how I discovered it. And I did a blind buy, sought it out on DVD. And I enjoyed it back in the day. Of course, I love Barbara Stanwyck because I've been a longtime fan of hers for a variety of things that she did. Every holiday season, I watch her in Christmas in Connecticut and a great movie that she did with Fred McMurray called Remember the Night. As a child, I watched The Big Valley for years. I love The Big Valley. She played Victoria Barkley. I still watch The Big Valley when it's on Saturdays on MeTV, and I'll still catch it every once in a while. She was also in The Thornbirds, which I loved that back in the day. Starred that Richard Chamberlain guy, whoever whoever he is. And, of course, she was also in The Colbys, which was a Dynasty spinoff. Also around this time, she also did like The House That Wouldn't Die and Taste of Evil. Actually, she did it after The Big Valley. I'm very familiar with Barbara Stanwyck. And so that was an immediate point for me as I dived into it years ago. And so I was looking forward to revisiting it. And I enjoy this one. It is, I mean, there's some stuff in this that kind of makes me scratch your head a little bit. There's some leaps of logic that happen. But there's a lot to love about this one, I think, personally. It's better than what we got from like 62, 63, William Castle. I don't think it quite reached the level of a house on Haunted Hill, for example. Is it on the level of a straitjacket? Maybe a notch below, but I still think that it's a good film. And and I still enjoyed it. I've got questions (laughs) of some choices that were made with some of the plot points. Certainly as we get to the climax, left me kind of scratching my head a little bit, but I did enjoy it. What about you? I loved it. This was a first-time watch, benefiting again from the fact of, hey, I don't even really know what this is about. I've never really heard much about this movie, read much about it, and I liked it. To me, the atmosphere was just terrific. It was just top-notch. These may be your plot points that have questions, but to me, it worked because you don't know what's a dream and what's not, and dream logic, things don't make sense. I'm sure you're going to talk about this, but 
the instant I heard that first note, I loved the music. Oh, yeah. And I thought actually it was going to become repetitive. I thought, oh, that's a snappy tune, but we're going to hear it over and over. And we did for a little bit, but then he does variations on it. And it is terrific. It really adds to it. Even not the theme, but when they're in the wedding. Yeah. It's a variation that's sort of that and a mashup of the wedding song, you know? The, the I music is one yeah. of the high points of the film. Vic Mizzy of Do Other Things, but Adam's Family, as we mentioned. He also did the music for The Ghost of Mr. Chicken, which is one of my favorite films. Vic Mizzy really, really did incredibly well with, with the music on this. And, and as you said, there's that fear of it's going to be repetitive, but then it, it really isn't. And to me, yeah, highlight, highlight of the movie. Yeah. And then it opens and I even got the impression since I didn't know what it was, maybe it was going to be a an anthology because this book opens and this voice and you probably know who it is. I don't. But I was instantly taken to the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland. Who was that narrator? Paul Freeze. Paul, OK, I want I was going to say that, but I didn't want it to be wrong. Yeah, so he, he has a terrific your voice. If, if you, you know the voice actor, he, he did a lot of Rankin Bass specials. So you'll hear his voice pop up and I've got a few things about him. But yes, Haunted Mansion was what he did. And that immediately took me into that. Which, and did he also do the voice of the minister? It, I mean, it wasn't his normal voice, but it, I could tell how it might have been him. Question. Uh, possibly. Paul Freeze goes back to the golden age of radio. He did the voice of Boris Badenoff on Rocky and Bullwinkle, did so many voice actor things. You know, he was the voice of the Pillsbury Doughboy. <laughs> you think about how many commercials they would make in a given year, a handful back then. I guess the early 70s, he was making 50000 a year just for doing the Pillsbury Doughboy. A couple lines a year and you're getting 50000 Yeah. As they say, that's great work if you can get it. And yes, that opening segment was and it's pretty long it's uh, it some of these movies have castle himself introducing it or a disclaimer but this is pretty long and i didn't know where it was going and i liked just what the images in the pages of this book what are dreams what do they mean he talks about when you dream you wander into another world when you dream you become a night walker so that then aha that's what this movie's going to be about is dreams and i love that whole dream what's real what's not so it started out strong and maintaining its sort of atmosphere through the whole thing and my uncertainty about what was going to happen. Loved it. The whole dream sequence, the description of it, as well as when we see her go into those dream sequences, I think are incredibly well done. And I found out that Joan Crawford was apparently originally offered the role of Irene Trent. She couldn't do it because she was doing Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. I'm glad that Joan didn't get it because I, I think Barbara Stanwyck, obviously two different actresses, Barbara Stanwyck just has a certain, a certain way, like when she's in Jeopardy and immediately as I'm watching this, I'm thinking moments where she's in Jeopardy as Victoria Barkley on, on the big Valley. She has a way of just something about her when she's in Jeopardy that she tries to control the situation, but she can't. It worked for me whenever she would have those moments and where she would just get into the kind of the panic and get into the confusion and trying to understand things, but yet trying to maintain control in the daytime when she was clearly not in control at night. I thought that was very well done. And yet, especially at the beginning, she also has this look in her eye like she's in on it or she's 
done something. She's trying to hide it. You know what I mean? Like when she's driving in the car, she's just got that look like. No look about her. Yeah. Yeah. And I am sorry. I forgot the other thing I love about this. And it's right at the beginning. The very first thing we see is Hayden Rourke, who is blind and doesn't care to wear dark glasses to cover those white eyeballs that are sticking out. Yeah. Terrifying. Forget what happens to him later. Just seeing that was scary. Yeah, he's done a variety of other, he's a character actor, did a lot of things, but everybody knows him for being Dr. Bellows. <laughs> I dream of Genie. Yep. Such a different character for him. And you don't really see him as Dr. Bellows because with the makeup and stuff, I mean, he definitely does look different. You might hear it a little bit in his voice, but such a different role for him to play. Once you know who it is, it was fun. And yeah, he was scary looking. He, he was not a nice guy. Even after the accident with the additional makeup. Yeah. Very, very good. Yeah, well done. Very well done. What are your questions or is it too early to get into those? Yeah, so let's talk about this. And we have to, you know, try not to spoil things. But obviously, as as you're watching some of these dream sequences, are they dream? Are they in the real world? I guess we'll throw up this spoiler because I've got to do this in order to talk about this. They are in the real world. But it's a world that's being manipulated. Not all is as it seems. I thought the church sequence was creepy, incredibly creepy with the mannequins and the mannequins moving, playing the organ. Were they moving, though? This is a point I had because the light in the background and here it's candlelight that's casting shadows. I almost thought it was that candlelight that was giving the illusion that they were moving. When you clearly look at the hands though, of, oh. of the one playing the organ, it's like, yeah, hands are, I, I think anyway, that they're moving, obviously yeah. a lot went into pull that sequence off. If you think <laughs> about it, this is really hard not to spoil certain things. So spoiler, if you haven't seen this one, you're going to have to stop, pause, go watch the movie and come back. There's another plot going on. I just think that everything that we see and when we get the reveal at the end of the movie, it's like, this is an awfully convoluted way to get what the one guy wants. (laughs) He's already got it because it's all money. He's pulled something off. Now there's some blackmail and stuff going on behind the scenes, but actually he's already figured a way out of that. And so now it's just, how do we get rid of Irene? He's already had one accident that he's pulled off flawlessly. Why not just have Irene in another accident? Why go to all of the levels that they go to in the film? I mean, they wanted to scare her to death and it didn't quite work. So just kill her. You've got a hole in the floor. Maybe find a way for her to fall to the bottom of it. She breaks in the room and wants to know where her husband died and come up behind her, push, bam, she's dead. End of story. And I had trouble following that. It, it It's revealed so quickly in those last final minutes. And I followed enough to think, okay, sure, this is, you're right. I don't fully understand. Well, and, and so <laughs> there's a scene though where, You've got the character of Barry. He goes to the house and he's hearing voices and he finds some mannequins or something. And the whole sequence, it's like once it's revealed that, okay, again, spoiler, Barry's kind of behind what's going on. That whole sequence of the house, while it made sense when you were watching the movie because you don't know what's going on yet, 
And it's kind of a bit of a red herring because you're thinking, well, obviously he's not in on it. He's trying to find out what's going on in it. But then it's revealed that he is kind of behind it. That sequence doesn't make sense for me. It's like, Mm. why does he go into the house and is acting like he's kind of shocked at what's going on? Because he knows what's going on. Does he, though? Does he know what the other guy's doing? Well, I know, but wouldn't that be your first suspicion that, okay, this guy who's blackmailing me and I've figured out a way to work with him, but now we're trying to to scare Irene Trent to death. I don't know. That whole sequence to me is like, why is he acting that way? But your first thought would be, okay, well, it's George, George Fuller. It's him who's doing it. Was that the time that she went with him and was in the phone booth or was that a different time? I think, no, she wasn't with him at that point. Okay, because I was going to say maybe he had to go in because she was there, but... but yeah, she wasn't there. And so okay. all that whole sequence in the house, it's like, well, whose benefit is that's for our benefit, the, the viewer watching the scene, but it doesn't make sense when the reveal is played. Yeah. Maybe I'm overthinking it. But no, you're doing to this what I was doing to Macabre. Yeah. It, it seems like maybe because you've seen it before, you're noticing things that I didn't notice. Well, there was another thing where, which didn't make sense to me when George was throwing the mannequins down the hole. Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah. It's not like, okay, oh my gosh, the mannequins are here. I'll throw them down the hole because nobody will see them. That didn't make any sense to me. And he seemed mad. And I didn't understand... Was that after his wife was killed? Maybe. Oh. But but we didn't know it was his wife, so we wouldn't have known. Yeah. But that's why he was mad. So why was he mad? You could say, well, okay, it was because, you know, his wife was killed. Okay. But still, why is he throwing the man? Well, why did he keep him in the house? You know, he's going to have this fire, right? Yeah. So then why bother throwing the stuff down the hole when the whole house is going to burn anyway? And yes, why keep the mannequins in the house? Along with that, it's like, well, how did you get all of that to this chapel that is dilapidated for sale with the windows boarded up and set it all up and then take it all down and get it back? The only thing I told myself, because she'd have a dream and then it would be daylight. And well, a dream isn't a good example, but like when her husband died, it was night and then it was daylight. And so I'm like writing my notes the next morning, but no, it's several days later because they've already had the funeral and she's dressed in black. I think maybe several days might've passed in between scenes rather than being literally the next day. Yeah. I guess that's the only way that it would work with the apartments too, right? They had a lot of stuff had to go into that to make that believable. I did think the husband was still alive. I thought that was going to be the twist that yeah, he didn't really die and he was doing all this to get revenge on her because yeah. he thought she was cheating or something. I, th- I thought the same thing when I first saw it. A couple other questions. One, and this is not really a plot point as much as, as it is a, this happens in films all the time. Yeah. Barbara Stanwyck comes in the house and she sees a gun on the floor. So what's the first thing you do? Grab the gun. Does nobody watch movies and know that there's <laughs> fingerprints on the guns and now your fingerprints on the gun. So if that gun was used for a murder, you have now implicated yourself in said murder. I wanted to smack her. At the end of the movie, Barbara Stanwyck, last person standing, right? What happens to the money? In the will, definitively went to Barry, right? He changed the will. Hmm. It's, it goes to Barry. Barry gets the money. Now, George knew about it. 
But George was in on this, split the money deal with me, whatever. So Barry's dead. George is dead. George's wife is dead. Everybody who knew about the crazy plot is dead. So Irene is standing. It's like, okay, well, she's the only one who knows about the plot. And now there's three more dead bodies. So certainly the police are going to be looking at her. Isn't it convenient that you're the last person standing and you know everyone else is dead? Does she get the money? How would she? It's only her word that says that the will was changed against her husband's wishes because her husband's dead. He's not going to corroborate it. No one else is going to corroborate it because they're dead. So Barry's estate would have the money. And so his relatives would get the money. So the only way she would potentially get the money is by suing the other people. I know I'm overthinking well, it. But and number one, I don't know that she really cared about the money. I don't think she did. That either. was never her motivation yeah. or anything. She wasn't like trying to protect her inheritance or anything. But plus, she's going to be perfectly fine living in the back of that beauty shop, <laughs> cutting hair every once in a while. Well, we don't know that they're dead just because they fell down a hole. And maybe, but probably not. We saw something sticking through the chest of someone that fell. Oh, so, yeah. So there could be a sequel out there. <laughs> someone could come up with a sequel. All of this aside, very atmospheric film, great music. I really did enjoy. Maybe you enjoyed it a fraction better than I did. Yeah. And the pacing was good. It didn't have, I didn't feel it was dragging like I did. No. With Cobb. Good running time. There was no gimmick. Although there was some promotional stuff, there was an advertising campaign with a hypnotist by the name of Pat Collins. A five-minute promotional film was made in which six people were under hypnosis describing their nightmares. You get a snippet of that in the trailer for the movie. I could not find the five-minute promotional film anywhere online. So I don't know if it still exists or not. Maybe it was something that was not publicly made. Maybe it was something behind the scenes. I don't know. There's a particular painting that also figured into the marketing of the film. And that is, and I'm probably going to butcher the name. I'm sorry. Henry Fuseli. It's called The Nightmare. Painted in 1781. It's a chilling picture of an incubus or demon on a sleeping woman. That has played into so many other horror movies and into other stories and such that image of a, of a demon coming at night, people becoming paralyzed and a demon basically sitting on the chest, taking the life out of you, your life force out of you, chilling. And so that was kind of the marketing and, and kind of, I guess, maybe tying in into a, a painting. That was about the only gimmicks that this movie had. There was no gimmicks once you got to the theater. And this was really because William Castle was writing on Robert Block's reputation he had written Psycho. There was a bit of a, a marketing thing behind the fact that Robert Taylor, who plays Barry Moreland, and Barbara Stanwyck, who we mentioned plays Irene Trent, they had used to be married. They were husband and wife. They were divorced. This was a big reunion for them on the screen. The Nightwalker had a tough time kind of competing, even though it had a couple of big names in it. Couldn't compete against some of the other films playing in the movie theaters. The film received kind of a lukewarm response from the critics. Didn't really love it as much. And so it ended up not being a success. Even though, as we've said, this was certainly better than some of the films he did just like in 62, 63. This would be kind of the end of William Castle's solid run. From this point forward, He's on kind of a downhill stretch for sure. There's no more roller coaster ride. It's a straight downhill stretch. 
for the rest of his career. It deserves more recognition than it gets. It yeah. doesn't get talked about much. Not a lot of hype behind this one. People mentioned William Castle. You get House of Haunted Hill, Tingler, 13 Gusts, and those are amazing films and admittedly probably better films. But The Nightwalker deserves more love. It does have an interesting cast. Let me just rattle off real quick. Robert Taylor, I would say he was an A-list star at one point. He did lots of movies, eventually did lots of TV. He did films like Ivanhoe. He did a very popular TV show called The Detectives, a very popular film called Quo Vadis. Mm. We talked about Barbara Stanwyck. So Judy Meredith, she played Judy Holliday, wife of uh, George Fuller. She was in some genre films. She was in Dark Intruder, Queen of Blood, Jack the Giant Killer. Hayden Rourke was also in some genre-related things, besides I would consider Idra Magini genre-related. But he was in Thriller and Twilight Zone, When Worlds Collide in the early 50s. Lloyd Bachner played George Fuller, the dream man. Character actor, very familiar, a lot of TV work, a lot of stuff that you've seen him in. I'm currently revisiting the original Battlestar Galactica series. We haven't got to the episodes yet, but in the latter half of that season, he plays Commandant Leiter in two episodes of Battlestar Galactica. And of course, Robert Block, Psycho, a lot of other work that Robert Block did, including Star Trek. He wrote three episodes of Star Trek, What Are Little Girls Made Of? Also, two of the scariest episodes of the original series, Cat's Paw, Wolf in the Fold. He also wrote Thriller, Hitchcock. He did write Straight Jacket, The Skull, The Deadly Bees, Torture Garden, episodes of Journey to the Unknown, Night Gallery, Tales from the Dark Side. Also wrote an episode of the series Circle of Fear, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. I have to say that the Nightwalker soundtrack is available on a CD. It came out in the early 2000s. It's only $78.99. (laughs) 1965. His next film was I Saw What You Did. This I wish I didn't see that one. Yeah. I didn't like it at all. Let me tell you, there's there's some similarities between this and 13 Frightened Girls. It's better than 13 Frightened Girls, so plan your viewing accordingly. There was a gimmick in this one. There was a phone in the lobby that would connect to a message saying, I saw what you did and I know who you are. Unfortunately, the gimmick failed because it jammed phone lines with the local phone companies. Some theaters also installed seat belts in random seats. So in case you were shocked out of your seat, this was essentially not the official end of the gimmicks, but it would be the last gimmick for a decade that William Castle would do. By the way, he supposedly had an argument with the phone company and they threatened to disconnect his personal phone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, remember back then, the phone company wielded a lot of power. I Saw What You Did does feature Joan Crawford. It's the last American film she did. She gets starring roles. She's right there at the top. She's a cameo in the film, glorified. She's in the film for nine minutes. Joan Crawford said, well, put my name top of the list. Her role is forgettable at best, unfortunately. This was the debut of the two lead actresses, Sarah Lane and Andy Garrett. You know, they did rather well playing teenage girls. They were convincing. I did see this one the other night, my first time viewing. I liked it better than 13 Frightened Girls, but eh, meh, this one's not that good. 
1966, he did Let's Kill Uncle. I want to see this. I did not get a chance to see this. Simply ran out of time. I will watch it probably sooner than later, unless I have had my fill of William Castle. I might keep it on the watch pile. I didn't like this one either. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. He's leaning more into the comedy, I think, with that one. And it just... So he goes full comedy by 1967. So he decides to try to go back that route. He does two horror comedies in 1967 with Sid Caesar, The Busy Body and The Spirit is Willing. I did watch The Spirit is Willing. I did not watch The Busy Body. I'm not a big Sid Caesar fan. His comedy just doesn't appeal to me. Sorry. If you enjoy Sid Caesar, you might enjoy these films. Spirit is Willing seemed like the more horror of the two had to do with ghosts basically wreaking havoc in in a house, kind of a haunted house tale. This movie's too long. Pacing was all off on it. Very uneven part of that film. There's some comedy that is just very forced and is not very funny. (laughs) There's some really weird stuff that happens in the course of the movie. It's implied that the teenage boy has sex with the ghost. Kind of weird. William Castle does this stuff, and then he kind of throws in some of these weird elements in the film. It leaves me scratching my head a little bit. It's not a horrible movie. There's some fun appearances by some familiar character actors. Not a horrible film. 1968, he leaves the comedy behind, tries to go back to genre, I guess, with Project X. Yeah, there's an idea here but it's not well executed. It's clearly got a low budget. There is some really leaps of logic that take place. And some of the things they do in this film that you're like, there's no way that they would pull it off. I felt like that we needed to know a little bit more of the time period. You get these little references and things like, and they're calling certain races a new name. And you're just kind of expected that you know what they're talking about but you don't. And there's really no explanation. You eventually kind of figure it out. It was not a horrible film, but not a great film. And some of these films are one and a half, two stars, leaning towards two stars. So it's not like horrible, but not great. Did Is you that see- the one with Matt Broderick and some monkeys? No. Have you seen this one? No. Eh. You're, You're not selling check- me. You might check it at some point. It's got Christopher George. 1968, though, something happens. He mortgages his home to acquire the film rights to the Ira Levin novel, Rosemary's Baby, before the book is even published. He takes a pretty big leap. He wants to direct the film. He thinks it'll be an A picture, and he wants to direct, and that's his goal. He wants to be able to direct an A picture. He wants to elevate himself from the B level of pictures. And certainly by the late 60s, He's not where he was in 59, 60, 61. It's a pretty big leap for him. It ends up paying off in one sense. He makes a deal with Paramount Pictures, so he doesn't lose his home, but he is only going to produce Rosemary's Baby. They want to go with a different director, and they end up going with Roman Polanski. He ends up making cameo in the film. He's the man outside the phone booth with Mia Farrow's calling on the phone booth. Rosemary's Baby, of course, is a classic. Had William Castle directed it, I think it would have been a different film. I have to say this. I'm not a huge Roman Pulaski fan. 
Roman Polanski. Sorry about that. I think William Castle's version would have been much different. I have to say it. I'm not sure that William Castle was up to the task to pull off. I think the film would have ended up looking a bit more like a B film than the A film that it ended up being. And I think that really is due to Roman Polanski's vision that he had for the film. Unfortunately, as Rosemary's Baby is released, it's a huge hit, but he begins having some health issues. He suffers some kidney failure. He's down for the count for a while. And by the time he begins to bounce back, he's lost all momentum of Rosemary's Baby. And he is perhaps at his lowest point as a producer and director. He enters what is clearly the final phase of his career. He produces a film in 1969 called Riot. 1972 and 73, he produces 22 episodes of a TV series that was initially called Ghost Story uh, with Sebastian Cabot as the host. It was an anthology series. After I think only eight episodes or so, they decide to rename it, kind of retool it and call it Circle of Fear. It doesn't really change format, but Sebastian Cabot's no longer the host. Then we get to 1974 and does... (laughs) What is his last film as a uh, director? And that is the movie Shanks. As it starts at the beginning of the film, a grim fairy tale with Marcel Marceau. <laughs> and I did see this the other day. It's, it's a bit difficult to see. It's not really streaming anywhere, but you can rent it out there. I think Amazon's got it. I won't talk too much about Shanks. We're not here to talk about Shanks other than I had some problems with certain elements of this film. It takes a very dark turn towards the last act and not as dark as like last house on the left, but some things happen in this film that I don't think should have happened in a film considering the way the rest of the film went. Although there's some kind of dark elements before the tone changes and some things happen. Actually two things happen that left me, a little ill at ease. The rest of the film is just kind of a weird flick. This film is a film people love it or they hate it. And I I can't say that I hate it, but it's not one of my favorite films from Lane Castle. I probably like this one better than 13 Frightened Girls by a fraction. Take that for what it's worth. Interestingly enough, it did get nominated for like Best Original Score Academy Award. Odd that it did. Eh, the music's okay in it. 1974, you know, he had done some acting stuff. He actually plays a character called Jack Harper in a movie called The Sex Symbol. I really don't know much about this. This seems kind of weird that he would take a random acting gig. So I don't know. There must be a story behind The Sex Symbol. I don't know what kind of character he plays. It, it does kind of seem odd that he would do that. 1975, he would produce his last film. So Shanks was his last film as a director. His last film in which he made was Bug. This actually had a gimmick. So it was his first gimmick in a decade. He promoted a million-dollar life insurance policy on Hercules the Cockroach. (laughs) That's the way he ends his gimmick career. That was the end of his filmmaking career. But in 1975, he did do a couple of other things. He played a version of himself in the movie Shampoo. And he also played a director named William C. Castle in Day of the Locusts. And that was the true end of his career. At that point, 
Sadly, William Castle is only a couple of years away from his death. He would die on May 31st, 1977 of a heart attack at the age of 63. It's believed that his heavy smoking played a part in his death. And of course, that is iconic image. He was always having a cigar in his mouth. That silhouette of him with his cigar is what is kind of used now to promote William Castle films may have very well been a cause behind his ultimate death. The legacy of William Castle lives on. There's a great documentary made in 2007 called Spine Tingler, the William Castle story. Highly recommend you watch it. In the documentary, you will see his daughter, one of his two daughters, Carrie Castle. She actually produced two remakes. House on Haunted Hill was released in 99 and 13 Ghosts in 2001. She was involved to some degree or another in the production of those films. But she does appear in that documentary and has a lot of great things to add about her father. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention the movie Matinee from 1993, which stars John Goodman, clearly inspired by William Castle. William Castle, you know, his legacy lives on. His, many of his movies are classics. Some of them, as we talked about, not so classic. But judge for yourself. Seek them out. Most of his movies are readily available one way or another. Your mileage may vary, so you might enjoy some of these films better than, than Jeff or I did. You certainly can't go wrong by at least starting off in the early part of his genre, 58, 59, checking out the films. I think both the films we covered are certainly worth checking out. Let's take a break and we'll come back and wrap things up with new business. <laughs> We've now reached the scream break. It's that time of the episode. You've almost made it to the finish line, but you're not there yet. You need a special code word to prove to us that you've made it this far, that you're brave enough. Simply send an email to classichorrors.club at gmail.com and include the special code word. Richard, what is the code word? The nightmare. Send the email, include the nightmare code word, and you will receive a special certificate of survival that'll prove to you and your friends that you have survived this episode of the Classic Horrors Club Podcast. Richard, it's time for new business, and we have several of our Facebook group page members to thank for some of the items that I'm going to mention. First, though, I want to ask you about the 1922 silent Lon Chaney film, The Trap. Have you seen that? Silent film is your thing. I have not seen that. Well, you can because it's coming out on April 18th from Kino Lorber. It's not one I've really heard of. And when you start to read the synopsis, it kind of fits in. A lot of his movies had the same sort of themes. We've talked about that before in our Lon Chaney episode. But a miner's happiness is destroyed when a rival steals his mind. He becomes obsessed with revenge and plans a trap for the man who took his mind. Yeah, you know, everyone talks about his horror films, but he did so many other films. Pre-Phantom of the Opera, there's some great films. I've heard of The Trap. I'm not familiar with it in the sense that I've never watched it. it absolutely intrigues me. Justin Giallo posted, and I had just learned about this, and I'm going to say that I didn't know about it until he posted it, but 1946's The Cat Creeps. 
That is coming late April from, believe it or not, vinegar syndrome. However, this is a new offshoot of vinegar syndrome called VSL, Vinegar Syndrome Labs. This is a universal movie. I don't know the history. Is it like not been available? Is this a big deal that it's coming out or not? Yeah, this is a big deal. This is one of those. Universal did quite a few films in in the early to mid 40s before they kind of quit that horror cycle that have kind of fallen through the cracks that sometimes they're either straightforward horror or they're suspense thrillers. Oftentimes, some of these films were included in the original shock theater packages, never got a VHS release and didn't get a, a DVD release for a lot of years. Any chance to get some of these films finally out there and available? I'm curious on this one. Makes you wonder what else they might have waiting in the wings. Another thing that I sort of wish was a April Fool's joke. No, I shouldn't say that. I haven't seen any of these movies, but a fun box set called Enter the Video Store, The Empire of Screams is coming from Arrow Video. And the box is so cool. It looks like a video store. And these are those movies that came direct to video in the 80s. We have The Dungeon Master from 84, Dolls from 86, Cellar Dweller from 87, Arena from 89, and Robot Jocks from 89. And by the way, these are all called Empire of Screens because it's Empire Films. Charles Band was the producer. And all I can say is, where's our set with Trancers and... (laughs) subspecies and those movies that to me were higher profile films than any of these. And then finally, our friends over at Kitley's Crypt posted something, an even stranger box set in my mind, Bollywood Horrors from Mondo Macabro. Now, the thing I'm curious about of these six movies in the set, are these true Bollywood films? Are they musicals? They all run two and a half hours, so they're long like a Bollywood film. But I just, I don't know if they insert musical numbers in their horror films like they do in every other type of genre film. I don't know. I feel like I have to see one. I know. To know what it's like. And if I like it, that would make me look for more. So I'll need to ask John, what's the deal with Bollywood horror? Anything else? Anything coming out you know of that I missed? Mm, I don't think so. I think you covered it. And I do want to mention just a few podcasts that I've been listening to that I think our listeners would enjoy. You mentioned Diecast Movie Podcast earlier. Episode 150 is out. It is the not first, but second time that Steve has interviewed David Selby. And then their offshoot Hammerama is out with a new episode where they talk and sing about lust for a vampire. (laughs) I listened and immediately messaged them and said, oh, you'll be getting feedback on that one. Tarek Collinwood, episode 52, Penny Dreadful. It's It's the Dark Shadows podcast, of course monstrously important, frightfully influential. And I just kind of liked that as, oh, that's a fantastic way to describe Dark Shadows. I'm not familiar with the guest, but he seems to have a number of credentials under his belt. So that should be a good episode. Haven't listened to that one yet. I did listen to Discover the Horror, number 39. They talk about William Girdler. There's three people in that podcast, and they usually each pick a movie within some type of subject. And so they picked... Grizzly, and then one that we've talked about, Day of the Animals. And they absolutely love this guy and absolutely love his movies. The first one, which, of course, I'm not going to remember, I have not seen, Three on a Meat Hook. Oh, Rod at the Bloody Pit, I don't know if he's feeling all right or not. In episode 168, they're talking about Son of Dracula. 
And in the show notes, it says it's a fun chiller that we think is one of the best horror films of the decade. I got to understand what exactly they mean by making such a unbelievable claim. <laughs> that would be a stretch for me, but you know, everyone's mileage varies. Nightmare Junkhead, we mentioned it last time. We couldn't mention the movies we talked about, although I think I spoiled one. By the time this airs, they will have announced the winner of this year's Into the Mouth of March Madness. As of right now, we know who the final four is. And the one from our bracket, Sleepaway Camp, is the one that made it into the final four. I didn't vote for it, folks. I didn't vote for Sleepaway. I went with Christine. I know controversial. People probably thought I was I was nuts. You know? I don't know if any of them stand a chance against the Evil Dead, but we'll see. Yeah, you know, it can be surprising. But I have- well, wait, well, that's the new Evil Dead, so I don't know. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's not the huh? so interesting. Tune in and find out. And then B Movie Cast, I listened to episode five hundred eight. It was Island of the Fishmen, and our good friend Bill Mize was on that. That has been one in the back of my head for quite some time, and I did finally pull the trigger after listening to their podcast. I'm so envious because you're staying up to date on these podcasts. You know me, I'm always so far behind on my podcasts. And that is such a flip because you used to be all on top of them. Every time I get ahead on one and I get behind on another, I did see where Penny Dreadful is doing a new show, I guess. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, is that a real radio show? Yeah, it's Penny Dreadful's Radio Horror Classics. I'm reading from her Facebook page here. Horror hostess Penny Dreadful introduces classic radio shows of horror, science fiction, fantasy, mystery, and suspense from radio's golden age. So, hello, right up my alley. Uh, Yeah. Can you withstand these sinister tales early transmitted over the WBMS Scarewaves? Tune in and find out if you (laughs) dare. Warning, radio horror classics should not be experienced by the faint of heart. It airs on WBMS 101.1 FM and AM 1460 out of Brockton, Massachusetts, but it is also online. Very cool that she's hosting a show on the radio starting Thursday, April 13th, going through at least Thursday, May 11th at 9 p.m. Eastern, which would be, of course, 8 Central and do the rest of the math yourself. I love old-time radio and, and I love Penny Dreadful, so that would be definitely up my alley. Well, that's all I got. Want to elaborate any on what you're doing at your blog this month or tell us about anything else? Yeah, well, over at the blog this month, I am continuing the love for William Castle and going to be covering quite a few films, not all. By the time you listen to this, I will have already done The Whistler. That'll be pretty much every Wednesday and Friday throughout the course of the month of April. I'm pretty sure I'm going to do the same thing with our topic in May. Uh, but that's what's going on over at monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. What are you doing, sir, in your neck of the woods? I did follow through with my threat, and I'm doing April Fools with some horror comedies. I actually posted yesterday on April 1st, April Fools' Day. Felt like I had to do that. <laughs> and uh, I've watched, and by the time this airs, I will have written the first one for the movie Student Bodies. Let me tell you, that thing was a revelation. I remember seeing it when it came out, and there was a lot of publicity because these spoofs of horror movies were coming out at the same time. There was Saturday the 14th and National Lampoon's Class Reunion. 
at the time, I remember that this was supposed to be a cut above. I didn't like any of them. I mean, this wasn't the best of them, but I didn't think it was very good. But now, and I suppose because of just the collective knowledge I've gained since then, or the whatever feelings I have about slasher movies of the 80s has changed, and maybe I appreciate them in a different way or something. But this movie is brilliant. It's like the airplane of horror movies. It is so funny. I loved every minute of it. I am starting off the month strong, and we'll see how we do with some of the others later in the month. Very cool. You mentioned next month. We are going to be covering the films of Mr. Big. We've recently lost the legendary director, Burt I. Gordon. He is responsible for a plethora of films, and so... This is kind of rare for us. When we do these, one of these retrospective episodes, we usually have a break before we do the next one. But I thought, gosh, we just lost Mr. Big. It'd be a great opportunity for us to take a look at his film. So you're going to get two retrospectives back to back. We're going to be taking a look at two films, very much the format we do here. We take a look at the career. We highlight some of the films, offer up our thoughts. And then we'll be taking a look at two films, one from the earlier part of his career, one from the later part. We know one of the films, we don't know the second one yet. We know the first film will be Earth versus the Spider or the Spider from 1958. If you want to play along at home, you might check your DVR because Svenguli played this, I believe, at the end of December. So if you recorded it and haven't watched it yet... Go ahead and break out that DVR and watch that episode of Spinguli. Otherwise, you can stream it for free on Tubi. It's also on Pluto TV. It's also on Freebie. You can rent or buy it on Amazon, or you can add it to your collection. The Shout Factory Blu-ray is currently going for $35. Seems a little high for one movie. That's the first movie. Now, the second movie is one of two films. It's either going to be Food of the Gods from 1976 or Empire of the Ants from 1977. You get to choose what the second film we're going to talk about is. And it's going to be done through a poll on Facebook. Jeff, why don't you talk about that? Yeah, just on our Facebook group page, I posted it at the top. It's a simple question. You check a box whether you want us to talk about Food of the Gods or Empire of the Ants. When we get the decision, we will post the winner and then we will explain how you can watch it. From pre-recording conversation, Richard said these both might be a little tough to find. Rather than confuse everyone, we're going to wait, find out what the movie is, and then we'll provide the options that you can watch it. First thing, Monday morning, April 24th, Jeff will take the poll down. From the participants that we have so far, it is a tie. But it is early. I only posted this morning. Anything else, Richard, or should we call the meeting to a close? I think we shall call it a day. (laughs) All right. Well, we are going out with another little bit of a stretch for our song. It is called Nightwalker. It's by the great Gino Vanelli from his 1981 album, Nightwalker. Wow. It's the closest I could come to the Nightwalker. It's a little more mellow, a little more smooth. But after the ups and downs we've been on with the William Castle roller coaster, I think it's just what we need. Gino Vanelli. Yes, let's listen to Gino Vanelli. That caught me by surprise. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Take care, everyone.
Cause your head is gone from my 